Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally recorded live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquid Church, living water for a thirsty world. For free video and more, visit us at liquidchurch.com. God be with you, mighty warrior. And with you. Who knows what this is? Anybody? It is a, thank you, Sean, it is a Chinese abacus. It dates back, actually, to the 14th or 15th century. This, in fact, is an exact replica of exactly what our, um, our federal government is using to regulate the economy. This, this exact one. Uh, just kidding. Today we are talking about generosity, and that is one of the key disciplines of the warrior life. And this must be a God thing, because we scheduled this series long before this financial meltdown that we are currently going through. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of scary. Um, they, they say that we're going through the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, and uh, our economy is kind of hemorrhaging jobs, housing prices have tanked, and, uh, and credit markets are just frozen. And they actually say that, you know, it, it's like the end is not in sight. This may kind of go, it's going global, you can kind of see. And for me, I think what's most shocking is like how quickly this all happened. Like, like a, a month ago, everything was like status quo. And then all of a sudden, you know, the banks are closing, uh, you know, uh, businesses are going bankrupt. The government has authorized a $700 billion bailout. And it's kind of surreal. And if you watch the news, it was interesting. I was watching CNN yesterday and, and the big headline was, who's to blame? Because now we're ready, to, and they had the top ten people they want to blame. And I mean, it's like the entire global system is imploding around the world. And it's like, how in the world? Well, here's the deal. Let's open up our Bibles, and I want you to turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 12. It's on page 457 for some ancient answers to a very contemporary question. Because in many ways, this series that we're in has been about wisdom, kind of gaining an understanding of how God's ancient and yet eternal truth applies to our everyday life in the 21st century. And although our current financial crisis may seem very 21st century, it actually is as old as Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs dates back actually to the reign of King Solomon. We're looking at, at, at um, writing that is about 1000 BC. And let's take a look at our Proverbs for the day. Let's look at Proverbs 23, verse 4. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Do not wear yourself out to get rich, but have the wisdom to show restraint. Now that last word restraint is not one we like to say as Americans. <laughs> That's not really in our vocabulary. We are a generation that has grown up on easy credit and bad debt. And now it appears it's time to pay the piper. And it's like, how did all of this happen? And the answer is this, no one had the wisdom to show restraint. And it's easy to blame, but everyone has been, has been trying to live beyond their means. Bankers were greedy, and yet so were buyers. And so there's like little point in kind of playing the blame game in this crisis, because truth be told is, we're all culpable. On the front page of the newspaper the other day, I saw they, they contrasted two stories. One was the story of a single 30-something trader in Manhattan who said, this is, how the, this is how the crisis is affecting me. He's having to rent out his $32 million home in the Hamptons. He had it built to spec, $32 million, it's not his primary residence, he's like, now I have to rent it out, imagine that. And they contrasted that with a working class couple who actually lives in Rutherford, who has two kids, and they had bought a $270,000 house with no money down, <laughs> and now they actually have to move out because they had a, noth a nothing down mortgage, and they were stretched beyond their means, and now they have to move out back into rental housing because they can't afford it. And those two contrasts are very revealing. Because the point is, whether you've got pennies in your pocket or billions in the bank, we all have a very similar human impulse, which is we lack the wisdom to show what? Restraint. As buyers, we want to live large, kind of beyond our means. And then lenders are happy to oblige with reckless offers. No restraint. That's what Proverbs is getting at here. And that's why we're shocked when it all comes crashing down. Look at verse 5. Would you? Proverbs 23, 5. Next verse. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. A lot of things have sprouted wings over the past few weeks. It's like 401ks, bye. Uh, you know, investments, the home or the car that we wanted so bad, now maybe an albatross around our neck, crippling debt, bad debt. In fact, does anyone know how much the average American actually holds at any one time, carries in debt? The average American, about anyone? $9,000 in unsecured debt. Unsecured means it's, it's not like your house or something, but just $9,000 in debt. Now, add to that 9000 that the average American carries 
5,000 more from the $700 billion bailout. That's what they said it'll be about per American. So that's $14,000 carried in debt by the average American. And some of you are like, well, finally, I'm above average when it comes to something that you, you talk about. And that's great. It's no wonder we bury our heads in the sand when it, when it comes to our finances. Because the truth be told, most of us are clueless when it comes to our money. We have no idea how much we have or how exactly we're supposed to be handling it even God's way. But today we're going to take a step in a direction. Because if you want to live a life of, of generosity where you're not just, you know, kind of scraping by or just kind of surviving the crunch, but actually where you have a sense of enough, where you actually feel like you could actually have enough and actually be generous towards others, well, we need to take our head out of the sand as scary as that may be. So flip over two chapters to Proverbs 27, because Proverbs has a lot to say about wealth and prosperity. It was written by King Solomon, who was kind of the Warren Buffett of the ancient world. And in Proverbs 27, 23, Solomon gives this very sage advice. Be sure you know the condition of your what? Flocks and give careful attention to your herds in the ancient world. This was an agrarian culture. Your flocks represented your livelihood. It was your income. So in our context, it might say, be sure to know the condition of your stocks, your family budget, your income. Pay careful attention to this. Do you know right now how much is coming in? More importantly, do you know how much is going out? Do you know how much you owe or, 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 or have right now? Right now, even if you were to ask that, like, give or take $100. Or is it, is it, well, I owe 7,000-ish, ish. What rate are you saving at? How much, how much actually do you use as disposable income? How much actually are you saving? How much are you giving to God? Most of us have no clue, honest, truth be told. Um, I, most of my life I didn't. And, and, and that's a problem because as we learned very painfully this fall, look at verse 24. Riches do not endure forever. And a crown, Solomon writes, is not secure for all generations. This current financial crisis is a generational issue. Our generation and the next generation will be footing the bill for this bailout. So if ever there was a moment to kind of take a good hard look at our money, how we're handling it, how we're not, that time is now, especially as we confront this economic downturn. So I'm going to start very, very simple today, very basic, and I want, I, we're going to start with this basic counsel. Be sure you know the condition of your what? Your flocks. Think of your financial pie just for a minute. And some of you are like, I don't want to think about that pie. But your financial pie, how does that get divided up? Do you know who gets the biggest slice, what your money goes to? I mean, we all have basic expenses. We've got food, shelter, you know. Where exactly does it go, though? What are your priorities right now? If your financial life was represented by a pie, where would you put the biggest slice? Oh, I could. Well, maybe just a bite. Get the interest.
subdued, he brought the pie. Where does it all go? You got a gift in your hand. We gave you a little envelope here. This will help satisfy your sweet tooth or uh, maybe just help you a little bit this morning. Wake up. Pour them out in your hands. We gave you, behold, ten candy corns. You got it? Does everyone have ten? Some of you now only have six. I saw you kind of during the video there. But pour those out in your hand, okay? I'm going to put mine in a glass. And I wanted you to think of these ten candy corns as your income. The last time we did this, we actually used uh, M&M's. But today, Halloween, we're using candy corns. If these ten candy corns you got in your hand, don't eat them. If that was a hunt, not yet. If that was a hundred percent of your income, how would you consume these on an average week? And let's again just start very simple. Where do you live? Um, how many of you own a house or you rent a house? Okay, maybe you maybe you own a condo or a townhouse or something. It requires a certain percent of your income. I want you to think about your housing. Think about your rent, your mortgage, your maintenance fees. How many candy corns go there for you in your life? What percentage? Uh, the reality is, I mean, I know some of you are like, it's New Jersey, dude. Goodbye. <laughs> Some of us, it's five, it's 50%, some it's two. Let's go with an average. Let's say it's four candy corns. That actually would be the national average. So take four candy corns. I want you to eat them right now. Just go ahead, eat them. Consume. Go ahead, I know. It's early. Mike's like, oh, all right, pop them. All right, housing takes 4% on average. Maybe you live at home. Maybe you don't spend anything. If that's you, just spit those out in your neighbor's hand right now. Don't, don't, just kind of. How about food? What percent... Do you estimate you spend on food every week? Trace your daily cash flow. How many of you ate out at least once last week, okay? Or went out to dinner last night. Maybe, maybe, maybe you go out to dinner, you buy lunch, even cooking home nowadays, it adds up. Again, whether you prepare meals or you eat out, food costs on average 20% of our income. So take another two candy corns, just end your mouth right now, two candy corns, down them. We're going to say very simple. I'm not going to do this for four services. I'll be all sugared up. Shelter, food, clothing. How about clothing? Clothing gets a percent for all of us. It's great to see all of you wearing pants this morning. Good for you. It's a casual church. But some of us spend more, right? Christian Zoller's wife. Some of us spend less. Christian Zoller's on, on clothes, on fashion. Some of us care. Uh, but that actually is, on average, about, about one, one to two candy corns. So just take one for clothing. Anyway, you should have three candy corns left at this point. If you've got three, hold them up. Think transportation right now, okay? Gas, I know it's painful. What's your car payment? Or your lease, okay? Or your lease says, all right? Or gas. Actually, if even if you go in the city, give another one to that 10%, there should be two left. And these remaining two, here's the deal. These remaining two are going to go to different things for different people because we all have different interests or hobbies, okay? So maybe you're a sports fan, right, Sean? And, and you're going to the, to the Giants game this month and it's like, go Big Blue! Well, goodbye green. That's one ticket for you. Or you like to travel. Let's give this to Mickey, okay? You're taking your kids down there. It's called disposable income for a reason. So pop another one in your mouth. And then most of us have debts we're paying off. We got one left. How many of you have a credit card? Okay. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so some of you are like, I'm waiting for you to say how many have multiple credit cards. Yeah, I play that little game, the roulette game. You make the minimum monthly payment on your debts, okay? That's the last one. You, you service a little bit of debt, and it's like, uh, melts in your mouth, not in your hands. It's funny how quickly it all goes, isn't it? Be sure to know the condition of your stocks and give careful attention, Solomon writes, to where everything goes. Most of us if we're like the average Western consumer, we tend to consume the majority of what comes in. And that is why so many of us are stretched thin financially. I saw some of you tense up and we're like, oh, my car, we're talking about money. Because we walk around under this pressure and stress. Because right now it's just revealing that for the, for the last few years, our outgoing expenses always seem to, to, to outpace what's coming in. And money's tight. Or we take on debt. And we try to save, but it's too hard, and we don't make any headway anyway, and we know the rate that we're consuming at isn't sustainable, but you feel powerless to do anything about it. Because half the time, you don't know where it goes. And when things get tight, we assume it's mainly a matter of money. It's the economy. I don't have enough candy corns. But the truth is, from God's perspective, money is not about the amount that we have, but our attitude towards it. 
The current financial crisis is very revealing because it's exposing a lot of things. But the biggest thing it exposes is your attitude towards what you have. Does your life blur the line between needs and wants? I mean, food is a basic need. A $5 pumpkin spice latte, maybe not so much. Transportation, that's a need for most of us. But the leather and the disc changer isn't the only option, though we may feel like it is. From watching the ads or looking over on our neighbor's driveway, see what they're driving. See, generosity isn't about needing more money to give. It's actually about needing a lot less to consume. Where we actually break our worldly appetite for bigger, better, faster, more, and replace it with a whole new paradigm. And that's very easier said than done. In fact, I want to challenge you, if you have one left, does everyone have one remaining candy corn left? Not to eat this during our entire time together. If you don't have one left, steal one from your neighbor right now. Let's just say, this is how the whole subprime thing works. Just take one from your neighbor. You keep that. Don't eat that for the remainder of our time together. See how easy that is. Now, let me ask this, okay? You got your one candy corn? Here's my question right now. If I were to ask you, whose is this right now, what would you answer? You would say, well, it's not yours. You gave it to me this morning, so this is mine, dude. You're not going to take this back, are you? Whose is this, mine or yours? Yeah, wrong. It's God's. And I know you're like, ah, I'm in church. I should have known the answer. The answer is always Jesus. No. This cuts much deeper than that. See, the most important thing when it comes to money, Scripture says, is our mindset. Ancient scripture goes to great lengths to communicate a countercultural perspective that is totally at odds with what we're taught in the modern West. That everything we have from our incomes to our food to our homes to our retirements to our pocket cash, all of it is owned by God. It's not ours and he loans it to us. It is literally from his hand to our lives. I want you to consider the ancient scriptures a moment. Psalms 24, for instance, says the earth is the Lord's and what? Everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In Job, God actually says, everything under heaven belongs to me. Now, that's a fairly comprehensive statement. In Haggai, he actually says, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. In other words, the Bible presents this completely different paradigm to our Western notions of ownership and possession. Where it's like, well, this is my... God is the owner of our stuff. Our daily bread, our spending cash, our stuff. He even lays claims to our lives. Think about how we talk about Jesus. Jesus who paid for our sins. Think of that language. He paid the price for our sins. Paul actually writes in 1 Corinthians, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. In other words, God owns everything in your life. Even you. And this is a paradigm shift for anyone who has grown up where we live, when we live. If you really let the truth of this reality sink in, everything I have is God's. I don't, I don't possess any of this. It is on loan to me from him. You begin to look at things very, very differently. That paycheck you received on Friday, that's mine, says God. That investment that you lost last week, why are you so sad? That was mine too. You think I'm crying over the stock markets? The silver is mine. The gold is mine. Do you seriously think like right now God is like, oh my gosh, the global economy. God's literally like, it's all mine anyway. You've been playing around with it. But catch this, because I'm a giver, I entrust some to you. So when you receive an income... No matter how small it is, in a very real way, God is entrusting you with his money. But he's the master and you are his steward. This is actually the ancient concept of stewardship. This is fascinating. This is not just the Bible, but in the ancient world, the kings of nations would typically go off to war. Sometimes for months, even years at a time. And while they were away, they would appoint you, Sam, are going to be my steward and manage my kingdom in my place till I get back. The steward wasn't the king, but he was responsible for managing the kingdom, the king's resources, his money, his land, his people, until he returned. And then he would return that kingdom back to his master. What's the point? God, not money, is your master. And he has entrusted each of us with some of his money and asked you and said, will you be my steward? Will you manage what I'm going to give you as my personal representative? So in other words, God says to each of us, and I know it's different for each of us, here's $1,000, or here's $10,000, or here's $100,000. This, I trust you. And here's the thing. While I'm away, I want you to use this 
to meet your basic needs, to provide for your family. But hear me, this comes with a responsibility because I'm asking you to manage it while I'm away until I return. In other words, the moment God entrusts any of us with money or material wealth, he's saying, I want you to be my money manager. You are the keeper of the corn. And this is where the disconnect happens for most of us. Because as Americans, we don't get stewardship at all. We get the market, we get capitalism, and that's all fine. But somewhere along the way, we buy into the belief that the material blessing that God brings into our life, thank you, God, that's clearly for my immediate consumption right now. Tell me this isn't true. I want you to think about this tomorrow. I don't know where you work or what you do, but if you walked in tomorrow into work tomorrow and your boss called you into the office and said, um, just uh, sit down for a minute, Christian. This is, I don't know what to say here. Obviously, uh, our business is down, you know that. Uh, layoffs are expected. Uh, our whole economy is in flux. But today, for some reason, I don't. I just got this email. For some reason, today, the board wants to give you a bonus. That actually happened, like with AIG, right? They actually went to the spa after the bailout. But if you were unexpectedly given a raise tomorrow, in the midst of all that's going on, we're going to actually increase your salary about forty percent in the midst of this turbulence. Tell me what would be your reaction. Tell me you would not immediately be like. Sweet! Aruba, here we come! Or I can finally get that couch at Pottery Barn. Or I can upgrade our ride. I can put the addition on. This is our default thinking as consumers. But scripture says your main identity is not a consumer. You are a steward first. You are a servant trusted with your master's resources. And when he pours more into our life, it's foolishness, literally, to say, thank you! Gobble, gobble, gobble. And I understand some of you are thinking right now, well, hold on a minute. That is a little radical. I mean, that's fine, Tim, to acknowledge God and all. But at the end of the day, I have what I have because of one thing, hard work. I got the promotion. I worked the overtime. I'm the one who went to school. I've got the loans to show. That's part of the problem. I have what I do because I earned it. Really? In Deuteronomy 18, God actually warned his people. He says, you may say to yourself, my power, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, let's read it together. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. In other words, God's like, you may think that what you have is a result of your hard work and sweat and tears. But who gave you those gifts in the first place? Who gave you that intellect that you could make it through school or that talent or the skill to do what you do? In other words, if you are fortunate enough to have a job and receive an income, God's like, is that something like you just keep up, you sustain that? See, folks, we just, we fall asleep to this truth until crisis all of a sudden wakes us up. Everything we've worked so hard for is actually, all of it was a gift in the first place. God's a giver of our talents and we are just the keeper of his corn. Stewards, servants. See, in the bang and clatter of, uh, of life, especially in a consumer economy like ours, we tend to totally forget that, which is why God instituted a very ancient practice to correct our outlook, to shift our paradigm, and to train our heart. Would you flip back to Proverbs chapter 3, where Solomon gives this basic instruction. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the what? First fruits of all your crops, okay? And that's going to be our core verse. If you're writing these down, obviously, we're, we're just, just out of Proverbs. And I realize most of us aren't farmers, okay? But like when the Bible references flocks or crops and he says, honor God first with them, it's actually the most practical advice you can imagine. It meant that God's people were to give back the first fruits, the first tenth of whatever their income was. So, so, so if it was grain or wheat or sheep or cattle, it was like give back the first tenth to God before anyone else gets a cut. In other words, God says, see these seeds in your hand? I gave you 10 of them. This is from me to you. But I'm entrusting you as my steward, but I know a secret about you. You got a sweet tooth. You do. You know it. You, an appetite that naturally wants to consume every single one for yourself. But it's not the path to life. That's not the kind of master I am. That's not the kind of king I am. God, I don't know if this is a wake-up call. God is a giver. He is not a taker. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. God's a giver. Giving is the path of life to God. God's like, I give you your daily bread. 
That's for the earth. I give you my one and only son for your eternity. And my child, I want you to be like me and be a giver too, not just a taker. So here's what I want to do to train you. In order to shift your paradigm, I want you to do something before you dump the entire bag in your mouth. Before you take one more for your needs and your wants, I want you to give back to me the first tenth of what I gave you, whether it's grain or fruit or Brock's candy corns, as a way of reordering your appetite when it comes to this stuff. Because I bet you can't eat just one. I know you. It's the kingdom of the world. You'll gobble a whole handful if you let yourself go. But if you honor me with your first fruits, I know I can trust you then as my steward. And so the Israelites gave what's known as a tithe. That's literally what the, you've heard that word. We receive our tithes and offerings. It's not a fancy spiritual word. Tithe literally is Hebrew for tenth. It means 10%. What the Israelites did is they literally bought the first 10% of their income to their temple, the Jewish temple or the church. As a way of prioritizing God and their income, and you realize money all of a sudden is a profoundly spiritual issue. It's not economic. God was actually doing something very clever to train, to train them. Think about this. Not training them to live above their means, not teaching them to live within their means, but training them to live what? Below their means at 90%. He's like, I am mandating margin in your life. You are not to exceed financial limits, but limit your intake and learn to live with less. Why? Because money is a wonderful servant, but it makes a brutal master. Some of you know this. We can't serve both God and money. So God's like, I'm going to force you to choose. And when we hoard the stuff for ourselves, thinking it's all, it has a way of consuming us and owning us. So the Israelites brought the first of their income to the temple's storehouse and said, we're giving back to God as a way of acknowledging it's all his in the first place. That's simply what the tithe is about. It's training for your heart via your checkbook. And that ancient practice has carried over thousands of years today. This was 1000 BC. The modern day equivalent is simply bringing your tithe, your 10% to the local church where you are spiritually fed. They actually brought it to the storehouse in the temple. Imagine this. There's a church with a storehouse. It's like a warehouse and where they put all the grain, all the food, all the everything. And where people came to eat when they didn't, they didn't have enough. The whole idea is you go to the church to be fed. And it's when we receive tithes and offerings at our worship service every week. That, we don't do that because it's, it's about paying the electric bill. It's not. It's part of worship. It's the way we train our heart and say, God, I'm putting you first in every area of my life in this one because I know how powerful the undertow of this is. And I'm inviting your blessing, actually, into a part of my life that everyone thinks is private. That's really what it is. So in other words, when we tithe, we're symbolically saying something. We're saying, I believe in my heart. I don't just say it, but I believe that God has given me everything I need and I am his money manager. So practically speaking, if you earn $50,000 a year, you believe it's God who literally has allowed you to do that. And guess what? If you really believe that in your heart, giving 5,000 back, that's like, that's nothing. It's just natural for you to do. Before uncle Sam takes a cut, God gets his first fruits every week. And it just extends proportionally. If God gives you the ability to earn, to earn $100,000 then giving 10,000 back actually to the storehouse, that's just natural. You give back to God, to the place you're fed spiritually. The temple for the ancients, the church for modern stewards. And catch this, where the word tithe emphasizes the amount, 10%. The giving of first fruits emphasizes your attitude. When it comes to your finances, here's a great question right now. Do we, oh, all right. Do we begrudgingly give back to God as if it's a hardship? Or do we actually see it as like, that is my number one privilege. Absolutely, Jesus. Of course I give back 10%. It wasn't mine. I'm not even giving it. I'm returning it back to God. It's his anyway. Why wouldn't I give him the best? The point of Proverbs is this. When it comes to finances, God wants our first fruits, not our leftovers. When we prioritize the tithe, it's a way of actually inviting God into this part of our life. He isn't an afterthought. I say, God, come into my checkbook. My money isn't a private little issue, which is why I was taught growing up. 
in which God has no role in this, I actually say, no, your priority. You get the prime cut. That's what I loved about our opening video, right? This guy, he's slicing up his pie, and he cuts generous portions for everything, right? For the clothes that he needs, he cuts a slice for all the things that he wants to do, the travel, the sports, the entertainment. Everybody gets the first cut. And then he realizes he left somebody out. I love what, by the way, the credit cards. Notice how he goes, here's the interest. (laughs) And then he gets to the end of the table, and he's just like, oh, my goodness, I forgot somebody. When it comes to God, there's nothing left. He consumes it all. And then one of them looks over and says, dude, he brought the pie. That's why we serve God first. He owns your pie. And some of you are like, it's just a little cream puff I have. I understand. That's his. And everybody else got served first, except for the guy who brought the pie to the party. That's why we give God first place and honor him with our, with our tithe. And just understand this. There will be plenty of things lining up in your life for their first cut. It's just a matter of whether you serve them or God first. Scripture says you always serve God first, not because he needs your money, but because he wants your heart. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your what? Your Heart will be also, when we tithe, we're just training our hearts to be with God first. Now, I don't know how you're hearing this, okay? But, but my guess is some of you right now are rolling your eyes and going, sure. Isn't this convenient? Of course the pastor is going to, going to you know, tell us to tithe because that's how they pay for the bulletins and all the flat screen TVs and all the stuff I see around this place. That's what a lot of folks think tithing is. It's like this is a religious tax. This is how the church generates its income. For most of my, I know I I can say it because for most of my adult life, I thought the tithe was literally like a tax. When I got my first job, I was teaching high school English over in Summit, New Jersey. I remember getting my first paycheck and being like so pumped, my first like adult paycheck. And I thought, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you earn like, I wasn't earning $52,000, but if you earn 52, just divide it easy, right? If it's $1,000 a week, you assume that check's going to be $1,000. And I got that check and I was like, who is FICA? Who is this? Why, why is she doing this to me? What the, you know, all these taxes got taken out. Deduction, 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 deduction. And I was like, what the? And then I went to church and I was like, yeah, here we go. Tax number five. Thanks a lot. FICA. So you know what I did? That first year I got my job, I started tipping at church. I got savvy. I started realizing there are loopholes. For instance, we can give on our net income. In other words, what that, that little FICA bite is, not our, not our gross. Not what, I would give based on what I had left over after the government and everyone else got their t- cut. I gave them the slices and I'd say, oh yeah, God, here, I got, only got that much. God would get 10% of what was left if I made it to church. Because if I was traveling or Colleen and I were on vacation, well, you know, we'll, we'll catch up later. And it never got easier. Because as I got older, guess what? I assumed more responsibilities. <laughs> Some of you understand this. All of a sudden it was like, I got my first job and now my first car payment. Then I got engaged. Then I had to buy a wedding ring. Then it was like, what's this honeymoon thing? And then we started looking for a home. Whatever. And because I was stretched so thin, whenever I went to church, I'd feel like a mild tinge of guilt. And so whenever that popcorn bucket came around, I'd, I'd drop it. Whatever spare cash I had, I mean, it's bad for Don't you feel awkward when you can't do anything? When the popcorn bucket comes around, some of us are like, oh, yeah, hold on, just to say, you know. And so what I would do is I'd take out whatever I had, and here's a five. <laughs> I would give them something token, really what, it, what, what is a tip. And it's amazing what that does to your attitude. I mean, where do you typically leave a tip? Think about that. Yeah, like at a restaurant, right? When you want to rate the quality of someone's service to you. So what I found myself doing is, if the band rocked, or I liked the song that they played... Not bad. I li- that was pretty good, Banky. Just keep it down next time. It's a little bit loud. There's two for you. Or if the preacher was funny and-, and he kept it short, maybe a little bit extra. I liked the service. But if the topic was boring and the music sucked, well, maybe not so much this time. And suddenly you see the focus shifts. Because the tithe puts the focus on God and how we can serve him. But a tip puts the focus on who? Me, as a consumer, what have you done for me lately? Needless to say, this is not what God's after. God is not interested in exacting a religious tax. 
Truth. If you hear nothing else, God doesn't need your money. God is in no need of a tip. He, we are his servants. He is not ours. And that's why he asked for a tithe. Because in the end, he's after our hearts. He longs to change our attitude towards money, not the amount that we have. Because where our candy corn is, there our hearts are also. And so the question becomes this. Right now, when the economy has slowed down, when finances are tight, can you still be trusted by God to put him first? That is the question everyone's asking right now. In a world of financial uncertainty, who are you going to trust? It's very interesting what we put on our bills, isn't it? What's it say at the top of every bill? In God, we trust. Now, here's the interesting thing. The bills that they're printing up for the $700 billion bailout are a little bit different. They do, to reflect the global economy, they're changing the face of it a bit. So they actually have new bills uh, that, they're, that they're circulating. <clears throat> but this is the challenge of the tithe, particularly in this moment in the history of our nation and as God's people. When things get tight, where do you put your trust? In God we trust, that, so says the bill. But what if it's just the opposite? What if this economic downturn was actually a test of God's trust in us? See, when finances get tight, our natural impulse, you know what we do. You know what happens. I've, done, I've already started doing it. We close our fists. We start squeezing tight and hold on because I only got a little to begin with, so I better hold it on really good. And, but what if this was an invitation to actually do just the opposite and opens our hands and release more back to God as a way of showing him, God, you can trust me now or at this moment more than ever. And God, we trust, sure. But what if the question was, can God trust you? I want you to flip to the last book of the Old Testament to bring this home. Turn to Malachi, page 665, or as we like to say in New Jersey, Malachi, the Italian prophet. Malachi, 3, 7 through 10, records God's final words um, to his people. This is the last book of the Bible. And by this moment, they had drifted far from God's heart. I want you to think about this. Here's the setting, by the way, for Malachi. It is Malachi, by the way. The Israelite nation had imploded. It was crumbling. They were at war with four of their enemies, and their economy was in shambles. Does this sound familiar at all? And Malachi is God's final attempt to reach back out to them one last time and attempt to repair this relationship. Let's read this together. Look at verse 7. Return to me, God says, and I'll return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Answer, let's read it together, in tithes and offering. In other words, God's like, I want you as a nation to come back to me so I can bless you. And the first step is to stop robbing me, <laughs> which is a pretty stinging accusation. They're like, wait, what? Wait, like, how do you rob me? It's kind of like a Robert De Niro moment. You're going to rob me? And, uh, and, and, and they're like, how? And he's like, in tithes and offerings. In other words, at the point of your greatest need, you cut me out of the picture. I mean, if there was ever a moment to get your priorities straight financially, now is that time. <laughs> but because you've left me out, verse 9, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you because you're robbing me bring verse 10 the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house god says here's where we're going to start because i understand money is the biggest hook in your life right now i want you don't just give lip service to me bring your first fruits not your leftovers and let's start over He's like, so if I gave you 10 candy corns, I'm asking you to begin by giving one. If I have given you 10,000 candy corns, return 1,000 back to me. If you've been blessed with a million, you get the idea. This is important. It's not about the amount. It's about your attitude. Each poor person is to give in proportion to what they've been given by God as a way of saying, you are my master, I am your steward. That's all that is, literally. And again, I don't know how you're hearing this. Maybe it is your first time here where you brought a friend and you're like, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this. You're like, I knew it. Here it comes, the shameless appeal for money. I've seen this on TV. The guy with the big suit, the smile. Here's where I knew they're going to get freaky deaky on me. I knew it. Lucas can't be trusted. This is where they go. I want you to plant a seed today because tomorrow God's going to give you a parking spot. 
Seriously, part of me right now feels so badly for you first-time guests visiting us today because we actually rarely talk about money because of how distorted it's been by the church and how manipulative some of our leaders have been. And I apologize to you for that. I, literally, literally, I, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, I am sorry. But just because something's been abused or destroyed by men doesn't mean it fails to be God's eternal truth. And the truth is, you don't need to tithe to see if God can be trusted. You need to tithe so God can trust you. That is where the rubber meets the road. If, if you return your first fruits to God, even when the economy slows down, even when everything gets tight, even when your savings dries up, and, and before you pay Citibank, guess what you're putting to the test? Your faith. Instead of asking who's to blame, you've got a very different set of questions. Do I really trust God? And can God really trust me? You know what God's answer is to that first question? Look at verse 10. Let's read it together. God's four words. Test me in this. Translation, bring it on. Test me in this. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Folks, circle those words in your Bible Test me in this. Rip out the page if you want because of the significance. Don't do that. Because of the significance of those words cannot be understated. This is the only place in all of scripture where God invites man to what? Test him. Think of the cardinal commands of scripture. The Bible, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to what? The test. And yet when it comes to the area of finances and our money, God says this. I want you to step up and test me. Test my character. And see if I can't be trusted to lead you into a life of financial freedom where everything around, even when everything around you is collapsing. And this is huge, folks. Because tithing is an act of obedience that results in God's blessing. There's a spiritual principle here. In other words, God says, first, you invest a portion of what I gave you back into my kingdom. And then get ready. Because when you prioritize this area of your life with my purposes... I'm going to bless your socks off. You, I know you intellectually understand I'm a giver, but when you become a giver, not a hoarder, not a taker, like me, see what happens. I will flow over. You think you'll have enough? I'll flow over the floodgates of heaven until you, is that enough? No, the floodgates of heaven. I don't understand. I don't really care about the economy. Wow, I'm going to have enough? No, you may actually not have room enough for the whole thing. Do you get this? God's economy is upside down. It's completely different than ours. He is not shaking right now. The heavens are not quaking. He's not waiting to see what happens next week. He's actually saying, can I trust you? Do you trust me? It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of your heart. It's not your checkbook. What about, what about though? I mean, I got debts though. I know. Test me. We're trying to... I mean, we're trying to find a house in the worst of the midst. Trust me. Will you trust me? But my advice, I'm going to stop. Folks, this is a fundamentally different way of looking at life. God's economy is radically different than ours. So we don't have to walk through life clinging to our little bag of candy corns, keeping to ourselves, worrying if we'll have a nut and consuming some. Imagine walking through life, actually, with open hands. Because money's released its grip on you. And you're actually free. You're free. Actually, you have a sense of enough free to give to God and others. Because you know a secret. When we offer the full tithe to God with open hands, 10%, God opens his hands extra wide to us. Because I have riches you don't even know anything about. What if God's promise right here in Malachi 3 were true? Literally. What would it be like to take God at his literal word? As we face the greatest financial crisis of our generation, literally, God's giving us a choice. Will you close your fist to keep 100% for yourself and live with a curse? Or will you test God and return 10% and invite his blessing into your life? That's literally the decision Malachi challenges us with. Test me. This is your final chance to actually see if I can be trusted to lead you through the turbulence into freedom. And that's how the Old Testament ends. There's 400 years of silence before some carpenter born in poverty shows up. Right now, what are you trusting? 
Are you trusting your job? Are you trusting your investments, the markets? Or will you trust me, God says? So this is a warrior challenge to each of us this season, regardless of your situation. You want to weather this crisis? It starts very easy. God says, bring the whole tithe. I know it's counterintuitive. You want to finally start saving this year? Begin with giving. Bring the whole tithe. You want to finally get out of debt? Bring the whole tithe. But wait, I master carved. I know God can't bless that if you keep prioritizing other things over him. Why? Not because he needs your money, but because in tithing, you invite your master's blessing and say, I get it. You literally take him at his word and test his character and see if he won't lead you to this point where you not only sense you have enough, but I actually have more than I need. Imagine that. So today we're going to do something very risky. We're going to ask our entire church here at Liquid, you're watching or listening online to do something very daring. We're going to test God together and bring the whole tithe for the next two weeks at Liquid. I'm serious. We're going to take God at his word, and I'm going to invite you to return a full tithe today and next week, 10% of your income back to God in the middle smack dab of the most worst economy of our generation. And this is going to be scary because maybe you've been hit hard. Maybe you have been laid off or you're in debt or you see the holidays coming. You're like, how am I going to afford this all? Wrong question. Wrong set of glasses. Can you afford not to? Can you afford not to? What might you miss out on if you don't? In other words, what might God want to do? Maybe you are a young couple or your family like mine, and you're like, dude, we're, we're already kind of stretched and, and strapped, and, and, and you know, I, we, we, the house, savings, education. What would we have to give up to tithe? Wrong question. What might you miss out on if you don't? We're going to test God as a church starting today, and we're going to do it next week, and we're going to take him up on his challenge. It's completely voluntary. But here's what this means practically. You've got that envelope, pull out your envelope. The candy corns, you probably have no candy corns left. This is our regular giving envelope. And here's the idea. The idea right now is for each of us today to write right now, take your pen out and write, I'm testing you. Not you, Lucas. I'm testing you, God. <laughs> or if you're not ready to do that, that is totally fine. You can bring it back next week. You can mail it in. But with the first fruits or 10% of what God entrusts to you on a weekly basis. Again, totally voluntary. If you're first-time guests, just ignore this and say, they're going to whack you over there. Don't know it. Think about this. So take your round number, whatever you, you'd say you make. Let's make it easy. I'm not a numbers guy. I make $52,000 a year. That means I divide it by 52. It means I make about 1,000 a week. What's 10% of that? 100. So literally, I'm testing you, God. Bring it. Oh, gosh. If you are not prepared to do that, that is totally fine. If you're like, I got to pray about this, I got to think about it, totally great. We don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. Believe that? For those of you who are watching online, you guys in Melbourne, I was talking with Pastor Dave about this. I was like, you know, they're kind of far away. He's like, no, 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 no. I was like, yeah, but that's like, isn't that going to be weird? Like, I don't really, and they're like, are you, what, you don't want them to be blessed? I was like, oh, sorry, to ship my perspective. <laughs> If you're watching online, you go to our website. You guys know this. We actually, this is interesting, we actually installed a brand new secure system where you can tithe electronically now online. And here's the deal. This is a challenge. It is an invitation to train your heart in a new way. You're not locked in for life, and if nothing else, you're going to see what it's like to take God at his word and test him. And you may be very surprised at what you discover. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a sense of peace in the midst of turbulence. Maybe it's a sense of enough. That consumer spell gets broken and so the holidays hit and you don't feel the pressure to take it to the max and pile on the debt. Or maybe it's the start of something even more. See, when we prioritize God in our finances, sometimes God blesses us materially, sometimes it's spiritual nature. Um, when Colleen and I uh, stopped tipping, we actually said, let's, let's give God the true tithe. We started giving on our, our net what we took home. And then we said, well, no, it's actually first fruits. It's kind of gross. And we're like, well, that's, that's not, that's not a, a whole lot more. Oh, man, did we feel it. I was like, gross tithing, gross. Yet somehow we had some stupid debt, stupid debt out of college. I mean, not education debt. I mean, I'm talking like mountain bikes and trips skiing, like stupid debt. And we couldn't do for the life of us dig out from underneath it. The year we got out of debt was the year... We started tithing on our gross, and I have no idea why or how. It wasn't magic, but I can tell you this. Nothing changed. 
Our incomes didn't change. We didn't get a bonus. No one died. There's no inheritance. So, and it was a year we got a debt. So it's like, what changed? Here's what changed. What? Our heart. God broke our appetite for me first. And he recalibrated our hearts towards him. And, and he said, now I can trust you. So this is a tithe challenge for everyone in this church family. Would you trust him enough to bring the whole tithe this Sunday and next just to see what he'd do in your life? Today, you give back one candy coin. You do it. One. Back to God. The real question is, can God trust you? What's he put in your hand? Think about it right now. What's he put in your hand? Do you even have a candy corn left to give? Maybe you couldn't resist eating it. <laughs> Why don't you take that candy corn with you this week, put it in your pocket as a reminder of Malachi's challenge. Everything you have is his. Will you trust him during this extraordinary moment of testing in our generation? I hope you will. I am in. Our leaders are in. And I hope you will test God too. So let's, let's pray together. Um, and as we bow our heads together... It's going to take a moment here even. just I'm going to call our ushers forward. And, uh, and they're going to receive our offering as one church as we worship together. It's part of worship. And again, if you are feeling any pressure or guilt, I apologize. It's not the point. Do not participate if it's guilt. It's between you and God alone. He doesn't want your guilt money, so just keep that. We know this. God loves a cheerful giver because he is one. Father, thank you that you so loved us that you gave your only son the ultimate first truth father god you didn't give us second rate you gave us your first and one and only son so we could have everything to live so now father we give back to you we sacrifice lord it's just a little bit it's nothing um significant to us and we know it's not about the amount for you but it's our heart that we're giving back so father i ask right now that you're going to do amazing things that there will be stories of financial breakthrough in our in our congregation god uh, some of us, we heard this message a year ago and we started out and said, that, yeah, that's so right. That's so, and somewhere we got lost along the way and it's a year later and we're like, I'm still in the same spot and now it's getting worse. God, we receive this as a gift. Your invitation to a life of abundance. Thank you so much, Jesus, for new life. You're our master. Everything we have is yours. So we return it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.